Well, good morning, everyone. It's exciting to be here. Uh, what you're getting this morning was actually intended to be given, I believe, on the 15th of February when we were snowed out. So if I'm not prepared to give it, it's no one's fault but my own. Uh, I'd like to invite you to get a Bible and open up to the book of Acts chapter 1 this morning. And uh, actually, I think what we're going to talk about this morning fits better today than it would have fit back in the middle of February. But I was excited that Josh uh, gave me an opportunity to share this because there's certain things about it that's dear to my heart and also, I think, is uh, apropos for today. Now, um, okay, good. We're all projected here. As you know, at the first of the year until, uh, I believe, uh, the week Sunday before uh, uh, Easter, uh, Pastor Josh was doing a series called Discovering Your Shape. And in that, uh, we were talking about the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts, the uh, fact that we're all given them as believers, and uh, uniquely so. And with those gifts, we are called to serve within the church, the body of Christ. And uh, just like last Sunday when Pastor Josh uh, on, on the Easter Sunday said he wants to give the big picture and gave the gospel in a really, in my opinion, very powerful and concise way. Uh, I want to talk about the big picture this morning. Um, why did we study spiritual gifts? Uh, it's been my experience over the years that a lot of times this is just used as an as an intellectual pursuit, you know, kind of like going to Ancestry.com. You know, I could go and see, hey, I, well, I'm mostly German, but I have some Swiss in there, and I even have a little Irish in me, you know. That's really cool. Well, I have this gift. Well, I have that gift. I guess I never just really knew that, but that's really cool to know it. How about you? Is that really what the point of that all is? Um, why... Uh, what is the big picture regarding this, and why would we study that? Why is it important for us to know? What's the purpose of it all? And so I decided to get a definition of, of purpose, just to kind of set our thoughts here this morning. And, uh, okay, why did we discover our shape? The reason for which something exists, why it's done, why it's made, why it's used. What's the point of it all? Uh, what's the intended or desired result of knowing our spiritual gifts? Uh, the end, the goal, the aim. Uh, we may have done it with determination, with a, a, a sense of resoluteness. Um, uh, what was the subject of hand, the pointed issue? What is the practical result, effect, or advantage of us knowing how we are gifted? In other words... What's the purpose? Um, let's say that I want to be, I decide, well, I think I'd like to be an industrialist. Okay, that sounds cool. What do you need to be an industrialist? Well, the first thing you need to do is a factory. So I guess I need a factory if I'm going to be an industrialist. Let's see, will I choose one with one smokestack, with three smokestacks? Maybe we'll do petrochemical, maybe we'll do nukes. Okay, let's say I decide on the one with one cool smokestack. Now I've got a factory, I'm going to be an industrialist. But to be an industrialist, you need something else. You need workers. Okay, now I've got workers. I've got highly trained, qualified workers. Okay, I'm ready. What am I going to make? 
What's the purpose of that factory, of those workers? Why does it exist? Why did we go through discovering our shape? Was it merely an intellectual exercise so we know this and gives us something to talk about after church as we eat our lunch? Or is there an intended purpose by God for all of this? Well, I think we all know the answer to that question. So let's go through, uh, as we try to figure out what's the point of all this, um, ah, there we go, let's go through our passage together. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and I'll read it and just follow along with me. In the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, or taken up into heaven, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Whoop, next page there, sorry. Which you have heard from me. Uh, He said, uh, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times, no times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. May God bless that word as we go through that. Let's go back to uh, uh, the verse 1 here, just to introduce it. Uh, Verses 1 and 2, in my first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Uh, This uh, introduction really tells us who wrote the book. Uh, And the phrase, my first book, ties us back to the gospel, which bears the name of Luke in that they were both written to the same man, a man by the name of Theophilus, uh, we get a picture that somehow these men were connected. And the early church and ever since have universally uh, attributed both of these works to a man by the name of Luke. He is mentioned three times in Scripture, Colossians 4.14, Philemon 24, and 2 Timothy 4.1. These and there are first-person accounts in the book of Acts We did this, we saw this, we went there, we experienced that. Shows that he was moving about with the apostles and had a very close association with the apostle Paul in particular. He was a Gentile, a Gentile convert, and possibly of the church of Antioch, and the only Gentile writer in the New Testament, of the New Testament scripture. Another interesting fact about Luke is he was also a physician. Paul refers to him in Colossians 4.14, one of those references, as our dear friend Luke, the doctor. And appropriately, his writings include, particularly in the gospel, 
uh, a lot of a, a keen interest in the healings of Jesus, and he uses medical terminology often to speak of them. He wrote this book and the book of Acts, or this book of Acts and the Gospel, to a man by the name of Theophilus, which means a friend of God or lover of God. In the gospel, he dresses him as most excellent Theophilus, which was a term elsewhere reserved for high Roman officials. And his name appears in second century sources and seems to indicate that he was a wealthy, influential man, uh, possibly in the area of, of Antioch. And since he and Luke were both from there, it's, it's, it's more than likely that they had some close association. For sure, Luke's two works were intended to make him an intelligent, well-informed believer. And just, I guess we'll never know on this side of heaven, but I wonder if this Theophilus had any concept whatsoever of the magnitude of importance of the two books, letters, that were written to him. Well, look at verse 1 and 2 again. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Acts is a continuation of Jesus' work, but the focus in the book of Acts has changed. Uh, Whereas the gospel tells us what Jesus did for us as believers in his work of redemption on the cross, Acts tells us about what Jesus would do and will do and continues to do in and through believers through his church. In regard to that, there are two facts. And the first one of those facts is Jesus' work of redemption is finished. It is finished. Uh, That's exactly what he said when he gave up his life on the cross. Jesus came. He taught. He authenticated who he was through his miracles. He says, if you want one thing to point to as to authenticate everything I do and say and who I am, kill me and in three days I will rise from the dead. He allowed himself to be hung upon a cross. He shed his blood, paid the penalty for God's holiness, uh, that God's holiness demanded for our sin. He was buried and he overcame the penalty of death, sin, on the third day when he arose from the dead. There is nothing that can be added to that finished work. The work of redemption is done. However, the building of the church, his body, is still in progress even this morning and will continue until the day he returns for the church. So the building of the church, his body, is ongoing even until today. And we are all called to be a part of that. No exceptions. We are all gifted to be a power, a power, a part of that. No exceptions. So Jesus is leaving and his work is to continue. But in order for this work to continue, those who would follow after him are going to need some resources to do the work that we're called to do. So what we want to talk about this morning are five necessary provisions that Jesus gave for finishing his work, the building of his body, the church. And the first one we want to talk to about, we'll do in just a moment, but I want you to understand We are fully equipped to do this work. That's what discovering our shape is all about. It was not just an intellectual pursuit. It was in the sense that we find out perhaps how we are gifted, 
But we're all called to be a part of this ongoing work. And I'll I'll tell you right now, I'm probably going to beat you up today. Sorry, you can't fire me. I guess the worst that can happen is you won't ask me to preach anymore. But I'll give you fair warning now. But understand, I'm talking to myself first and foremost. There is no excuse for any of us sitting in the pew and doing nothing, waiting for God to come and get us. No excuse. We don't lack anything except the will to serve. So the first thing that Jesus let... uh, Uh, the uh, necessary provision for finishing his work is this. We must have the correct message. We must have the correct message to teach others about salvation and growth in Christ, uh, to win them to the Lord. We have to know the facts. In verse one, Jesus said, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And how long did Jesus do that? Until the day he was taken up or taken back to heaven. Jesus taught his followers until the very day he went back to be to the Father. Why? He wanted them, us, to have the correct message. Uh, The content of what it was we were to declare had to be right. And this is critical. It's absolutely foundational. We have nothing to announce to a dark and dying dead a world in need of salvation if we don't know anything. That's why at the end of his time, he, he charged Timothy, who was one of his closest disciples, uh, in Second Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. None of us are equipped to do God's work until we know God's truth. And you know what, friends? We are seeing this almost on a daily basis in our, in our culture right now. What do most people know about Christianity if they know anything? If they know anything whatsoever about it, it's probably, well, God is love. The Christians believe that. And they are supposed to be people of love. So that has been grabbed by the media, it's been grabbed by people around us. And anything we disagree with or say is wrong, well, you are not being loving. Or go the opposite side of that, you're just a hater. You're just a judge. That shows an absolute ignorance of God's word. And we are like sitting ducks. We're, we're fools that we accept that. Where are the Christian leaders speaking out on this? Like Josh alluded to earlier this morning, let's say, let's give you a a A or B question here. Jesus, well, here, true or false, Jesus taught more about love than hell. True or false? I'll bet most of you would say that's true. It's false. Jesus taught a lot more about hell than he talked about love. Now, why do you think that is? It's because of his great love and the reason people go to hell because of sin. And if he's condemning sin and allowed himself to die for it, then there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And the Bible clearly delineates that. And if we were reading Jesus' words in the gospel, we would know, yes, we're supposed to love people. We're supposed to reach out to them. We're supposed to do all this and such. However, we are to call sin 
sin. Why are we allowing this to happen? Is it because we're, feared, we're scared of being, oh, you're just a hater? Well, boy, it has silenced us to the point that if God were able to regurgitate, he would probably be doing it now. Sorry, I'm already getting off my text today. And not only that, on the one side, we have really nothing to announce unless we know the facts. Until we know the facts, we are absolutely sitting ducks for error. Whichever way you want to look at it, that's exactly what most of the church has fallen into because of a simple ignorance of the basic teachings of Scripture. Shame on us. So we have to have the correct message. Secondly, we have to remember that Jesus gave a clear manifestation. He wanted his disciples to begin with more than just the facts. He wanted them to begin with a living, vital excitement. And we see that in verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them for 40 days. Let's back up 40 days. What are we, about the 12th here? About, about the first of, end of February. For 40 days, for that long, after he arose from the dead, from the end of February until now, he appeared to them, he ate with them, he talked with them, he taught them. There was no doubt in any of their minds that he had arisen from the dead exactly like he said he would. And in so doing, had authenticated himself as God in human flesh. And, and they needed that. They needed absolute confidence of the fact that he was alive. I mean, imagine proclaiming and dying for a dead Savior. What would the point of that be? Let's imagine that Jesus had never arisen from the dead. I can imagine his disciples sitting around for a few days afterwards. Man, I can't figure that out. Why in the world would he have shown all this power and shown all this promise and gave all this teaching and, and said that he was one with the Father and we saw him on the mount transfigured and then allow himself to be drug out and beaten and killed like a common criminal? Well, it was good while it lasted, but I got to get back to making a living. See ya. That's exactly what would have happened. These people were motivated by the fact that they had a clear manifestation that the Jesus that they served and were to proclaim was alive. And it served to seal their fate in him. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than any, than all people, than all men. And as he appeared to them, he continued to teach about what? Well, if you looked about at the end of verse 3, he presented himself to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And in that Jesus continued to teach on this subject right up to his ascension, we might expect that it was a major theme in the, in the teaching of the apostles. And it was. We know that by the time you get to Acts chapter 8 and Philip was in Samaria, his message was about the kingdom of God. 
If you get to Paul's teaching at Ephesus in chapter 20, he was speaking about the kingdom of God. If you get to Paul's very end of, in, in Acts chapter 28, to the Jews and Gentiles in the Rome, preaching about the kingdom of God. But these were mainly Jewish audiences in the first century. And in their mind, the kingdom of God was meant to be an earthly political kingdom in Israel. And they were so convinced of that, that, that in the Gospel of John, it's even recorded that the crowds tried to physically take Jesus at one point in John chapter 6 and compel him to be their king. But that was not going to happen unless, Jesus, unless they accepted Jesus as king. They rejected him, and the physical, literal kingdom is now a future prospect for his second appearance. And this was a really hard lesson for the apostles to learn. Look at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And there was a good reason why they asked that. The whole life and economy of, of first century Israel or Jewish faith revolved around national religious festivals. The last festival on the calendar was Passover, and they fully expected him to be ushering in his kingdom at that point. Now the festival of Pentecost was coming up. So they said, okay, we got that wrong. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And look at his answer. It's very clear. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or reasons that the Father or seasons that God has fixed by his own authority. Will you at this time? Sorry, it's not for you to know. And it's not for us to know. So if anyone comes saying uh, it's going to be thus and such a date, you can be absolutely assured that they are wrong because Jesus said, no one knows. You can just be sure of that. So, one day Jesus will literally, physically rule and reign over earth. But verse 7 makes it clear that that's a future prospect and it's really not for us or them to know. And it's very important that they were left with this mystery and that we are left with this mystery. Now, why do you think that is? Well, I've got a pretty good idea. Every now and then, a couple, three times a year at BS... Uh, the district managers will come around and say, hey, the week of or the day of our regional manager is going to be coming in the store. That's code for get your act together, clean things up, do the little things that maybe you've, stu- that you've been a little lax on, get ready. Or the, one of the horrors of my youth, growing up milking cows. I'm sorry if you like it, I hated it. But one thing I know, you'd be there some inch scrubbing the milkers and when you're done one morning, the, the milkman would come in, hook up his hose and start sucking out the milk and he'd say, hey, by the way, the inspector's going to be in the area here in a few weeks. Ugh. So then you got to really scrub-a-dub-dub things and do more of the things that I hated back in the day. But anyways, they, the point is, we get things ready when we think we have to have them ready. The fact that Jesus can come any day, any time, we should always be ready. That's the point of Jesus leaving that mystery. Be ready. So, Jesus gives a correct message and and a proper manifestation. Third, 
We must know that we are capable because of his might. His might, not our own. Joel and Sally, I'm sure you've lived with that in times of discouragement. I know that I still, when I get discouraged over someone I'm working with and they just don't get it, you have to remind yourself, it's God's power that does that. The Holy Spirit has to change hearts. God has to bring people to himself. We are merely instruments through which that happens, if it happens at all. They still, now the, 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 the apostles have the facts, they're thoroughly instructed, they're convinced Jesus had risen from the dead. What else do they need? They need power. We need power. Verse 4, And while they were staying, and while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them, the apostles, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Now, Jesus tells, this implies very clearly that they were raring to go. He tells them to wait. He's waiting for a promise. Verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, Jesus had repeatedly promised that the Comforter or the Holy Spirit would come. And what would they receive when he came? Drop down to verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And they were not to go anywhere until that happened. Now, this introduces us to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which would place them into the church, the body of Christ. Now, note carefully, this is not a command to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. What was the command? But while, Verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them. What's the command? Not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. The promise or the command was to wait, be patient, don't do anything. It's coming. It's not a command to be baptized in the Spirit. That would happen according to God's timing and according to His plan. It's a positional truth. Uh, in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, Paul says, We are all baptized by one Spirit into one body. And that hope happens at the moment of our salvation, the moment we receive Christ. There are no Christians that have not been baptized into the church by the Spirit. Because Paul says in Romans 8, 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So what is it? It is an act at the moment of faith in Jesus where the Spirit baptizes or immerses or places us into the church, the body of Christ. So what is it then when we're given power? What, what is that? What, that is being filled with the Spirit will give us power to, innate, to activate our, our, the service of our gifts. And Jesus' command was to simply wait in Jerusalem and the baptism would soon happen. So, Jesus' followers were pr- pr- promised divine power or divine enablement. For what? We must clearly, and they had to clearly understand their mission. What was the mission? Look at verse 8. I want you to get this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my 
witnesses. You will be my witnesses. That's the commission right there. Now, what is a witness? It's simply someone who saw something and tells other people about it. Years ago, I was robbed at gunpoint in Little Walter Drugs in downtown Milford. And when the cops came, they wanted to know, I was a witness. What did you see? What did you hear? What happened? How did you feel? They wanted the facts. And this is exactly what we are to convey to other people about our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's what the apostles shared. We know that because John wrote that very thing in 1 John 1, 1. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life, or can proclaim concerning Jesus. The most important capability that any of us can have is to tell them about what Jesus has done for us so they can know about him too. And I believe it's interesting here that the word translated witness is a word called martyres. You hear the word martyr coming out of that? And you're thinking, now wait a second, Tom, are you saying we all have to die for our faith? No, we know that we don't. We might, but probably in our culture in this time, we won't. But the word witness became so closely associated with death to those who were witnessing about Christ early on that the word martyres came to mean, or took on its present meaning of dying for one's faith. Now think about the contrast. Now I, I have no way of proving this, but I've got this theory. I think more of us would be brave about our faith and proactive in our faith if someone was sticking a gun in our face. Or if someone was saying, get out of your house, you don't have it anymore. Or someone was saying, you're going to jail if you don't renounce that. Because we really don't have any, any need to actively defend it in our culture, I think that really serves to make us timid and even all the more uh, ineffective. Satan will get us any way he can. He's very creative in that. So, another thought on this. We do not choose whether we will be a witness or not. We don't choose. When we name the name of Jesus Christ, we are a witness for Jesus Christ. Whether we know it or not, if people know we're a Christian, they are watching. Like Big Lou says, don't kid yourself. They are watching. So you're a witness whether you know it or not. I guess really the only question is, are we going to be an active or a purposeful or a faithful one? Now, some contend that being a witness is all lifestyle. They're going to look at me and they're going to say, boy, Tom, he is a cool guy. Wonder what makes him like that. I want to ask him. Maybe he'll tell me. Some say, oh, no, it's not that. It's all what you say. You have the right words, the right message. It really doesn't matter. Hey. Both extremes are wrong. Now, I just want to give you an example from my own youth here. Now, I was raised in a good, godly situation. I was raised in a, in a good group of people. But one of the things about my background was it, it was a denomination that salvation was defined as entering into a process and going through that process called repentance. 
And that repentance process would lead you to become a member of the church, which was constituted salvation. Now, I wrote about this at detail in my book, so I'm not going to really go into it other than to say that one of the hallmark things about that is when one began repenting or to repent, one of the things you had to do was you had to break your former associations with people who were not members of the church. Now, in my case, uh, Tammy and I had been uh, going together for three years. Uh, We were done. That was it. Capiche. We're done. Fine. And uh, my my good friend Dave Baumgartner and I uh, started repenting together. And a couple other people did too. And one of them was a, a young woman who also had a serious boyfriend. And uh, she dumped him. You just drop him like a bad habit. You're not supposed to have any contact with him. Now, you know, there's some good thought and reasons behind that. But stick with the point here. What's our purpose? What's our mission? Um, and this boyfriend of hers, he didn't know what was going on. All he knew, he had been dumped because she was joining a church. So he started coming to church. And Dave and I, we befriended him. He was a cool guy. We really liked him. We sat with him. Uh, we, We called him through the week. We even began hanging out with him. And all we could really tell him was, listen, you're done with her unless you come into the church. That's that's really your only hope there. You got to go through repentance. Well, why do you do this? Why do you do that? That's just how we do it. And we kept encouraging him. It went on for a month or so. And and I actually had one of the leaders of the church come to me and say, you know, we really wish you would stop encouraging him along these lines. And I thought, well, okay. And I don't really know what actually led to the end of it, but eventually he stopped coming and that was that. And you know, in recent years, actually that came to me while I was getting ready for this and that stabbed me right in the heart. Number one, we didn't have the correct message, did we? Because I never once remember in the time we spent with this young man telling him about Jesus. Now, part of that was my own ignorance, but I wasn't that ignorant. I knew very well that Jesus was the way to eternal life. But we never talked to him about Jesus. It was always the need that if you want to get to point A, you got, or point B, you got to go through point A, which was you need to repent. And secondly, we didn't understand our mission either, did we? I don't know. That's why I think, and this is his editorial, but I think God's going to look at sin a lot different than human beings do. If you think about that, what this maybe meant to this young man, and how maybe, I don't know, maybe he's a great evangelist somewhere today. I really don't know. But I can just as easily imagine him being turned off by church and Christianity because of his experience. I don't know. God knows. And I'm glad God is a God of grace. Because I think some of the things that we just brush off as, oh, well, that was just that time. And then maybe we're a bigger affront to God than what we might imagine. Back to the point. Both extremes are wrong. 
But I will tell you this. Until you have a life which is not marked by sin, the most eloquent, correct words in the world are going to fall flat. That I'm sure of. And where were they to start their witness? Verse 8, but you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. Exactly what happened. And to the end of the earth, that's going on right now today. That's what the Kaufmans are an active part of to the world. The end of the earth. So, one more. We need the correct message. We need a clear manifestation. We need to understand we are capable because of his might, not our own. We must clearly understand our mission. We must have the correct motive. No one does much of anything without the proper motivation. And we see the correct motivation in verses 9 through 11. Look at verse 9. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Can you imagine the rejoicing in heaven as he returned triumphantly to the Father? And while they were standing there gazing up as he went, you know, why wouldn't they be? I can only imagine what what that sort of scene was. Uh, Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? The temptation would have been, What do you mean? Why wouldn't we be standing here looking into heaven? But the point is, it's not like it's bye-bye, sayonara, you'll never see him again. This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In the same way. What is our motivation for serving Jesus? Well, number one, because we love him for all he has done, is doing, and has promised to do for us. And number two, he is coming back for us. So we all have our marching orders, don't we? So, what does discovering your shape plus the church equal? Credible witnesses for Jesus Christ. Whatever else you know about Scripture, that's what the point of spiritual gifts and training and teaching and preaching is. That we be credible witnesses or Jesus Christ. And that's our mission. Now, I don't want to just leave you that and say, okay, go do it. You want to be credible? Do you? I think you all want to be credible, don't you? Come on, shake your heads, make me feel good. You want to be credible? Yeah, of course you do. Let me just give you a few suggestions that I've learned in 35 or how many years of ministry. And I do believe one of my gifts is evangelism. But you want to be credible? Here's a few things. Jot them down or just remember them. You want to be credible? The first thing I'd say is no glaring areas of ongoing sin in your life. Let's say someone throws out the name Tom Spiker. Yeah, I know, Tom, he is a money-grubbing, you know what. 
Tom? Yeah, I know Tom. I'll tell you one thing. Don't tell him anything unless you want someone else to know about it. That's one thing I know about him. Tom Spiker, you bet. He really loves the porn. Oh, I could go on and on. You want me to do a few more? Tom Spiker, he's got the sweetest wife and he is treats her terrible. Those are ongoing areas of sin. Tom Spiker, yeah, but be careful what you listen to that he has to say. The guy's got a real problem with exaggeration. Uh, he just says it's exaggeration, but the fact is it's being untruthful. Now, these are examples, folks. I hope none of my life's not marked by any of them. But that's the first thing. You want to be credible? Don't have your life marked by any ongoing areas of sin. I really can't think of anything a lot more important than that. And yes, there are sins. And you can call them that without being a hater. You can call them that because God calls them that. Here's another thing. Genuinely care about people. Genuinely care about other people. Now, how do I do that? You know, I'm really not a very cozy type person. Well, you know what? I'll give you an idea how you know. You care about them because God cares about them. You care about them because they were created in God's image just like you. You care about them because Jesus died for them just like he died for you. You start thinking of people in those terms and and you will begin to genuinely care about what happens to them. Here's another thing. You want to be genuine? Talk to people. That's an easy one. Show them that you are genuinely interested Ask them questions about their life, their things, their interests, their, the things that, 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 that defines their life. Now, I'll tell you this, friends. Now, listen carefully. If you find that in most of your conversations, you're doing all the talking and other people are just listening, you're probably not making much of an impact. You're really not. They may be shaking their heads, but they're thinking, oh, my goodness, how can I get out of here? Now, I know that sounds harsh, but it's true. Genuinely care about people. Be interested in their lives. Listen. Here's another one. Be positive. Yeah, I know there's lots of terrible things going on in the world right now. But there are also lots of good things. There's lots of things that we as Americans can be very thankful and happy about. And and be positive. I mean, you got a choice. You can be Debbie Downer or you can be happy. You really can, at least in your dealings with other people. Friends, let's face I'm telling you something, and I'm sorry to say it, but no one likes to be around a negative person. If you want to impact people for Christ, knock it off. At least don't have that be what defines you. Man, they're drunk. Another thing, be patient. Be patient. Remember, it's God's power that makes things happen. 
We are called to be faithful. Be patient. Uh, uh, genuinely care about people. Talk to people. Listen to people. Uh, show a genuine concern for them. And your chance will come. And when it does, keep it simple. You don't have to do an expose on the gospel to every person you meet. How about something like this? You know what? Jesus changed my life. I really can't think of anything more important in my life than knowing if I die, I'll be with God. And that's because of Jesus. You don't need to be a scholar to say things like that. And I know some of you are saying, ah, Tom, I just can't do that. Okay. Probably get a chance to explain it to Jesus sometime. Invite people to church. Pray for them. You know what? It's really hard to be mad at someone if you're praying for them. Pray for them. And at a very minimum, support others who are active in ministries that will reach them. I'll tell you what, at a minimum, if you want some really interesting reading, sign up for the Kaufman's newsletter. I look forward to that every time it comes. You know what? People like you are the true heroes. And I know that you do it because you love Jesus. But we say we love Jesus too, and our lives have never had anything extracted from them like you have. God bless you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your charge to us. God, as, as we yield to you, we know that Holy Spirit will empower us and guide us to be credible witnesses for you. And we know in so doing, we will glorify you. And Father, we know that ultimately that's our purpose here on earth. If there are any here today who have never trusted Jesus as their Savior, we ask you, God, draw them to yourself. I encourage you, if you are one of these people, to simply cry out, ask Jesus to come into your life and save you. And for the rest of us, Lord, we repent before you because of our unworthiness and the fact that we have spent so much of our lives not being faithful. Change that beginning today, Lord. We will do it by your power and your power alone and for your glory. And we say this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.